All right, so here we are at the end of 1 Peter. How long have we been in 1 Peter? A, you get a cup of coffee if you can guess the, the exact amount of time. You're right! How did you know? Six months. <laughs> get that man a donut right there. All right, so it's, uh, May, we began the first week in May, and this is the last week in October. So if you do the math, some of you need your calculators, that would be six months in First Peter. Now, we come to this last section, and um, we're going to focus on verses 8 through 10, but let me read the very ending. I, I thought the ending of a letter was called the salutation, but that's actually the beginning. Anybody know the name of the end of a letter? The goodbye. No, the valediction. It's the valediction. So this is the end of the letter here. To him, Christ, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, okay, so Silvanus is another name for Silas. So Silas and Silvanus are interchangeable. So by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, a little bit of a debate. Um, what does the word by mean? Does that mean that Peter is dictating the letter and Silas is his, his uh, amanuensis, his secretary? Or does it mean he's the delivery man? Don't know. Um, but Silvanus, Silas, is involved in, uh, somehow in this letter. She who is at Babylon, now everybody agrees that Babylon is code for Rome. Peter's in Rome right now, and she would be the church. So the church in Rome, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now this is John Mark, um, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who is really the uh, amanuensis or the... Uh, uh, the secretary for Peter. So Mark is kind of the gospel of Peter with Mark as the writer. Okay, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Boom. Now, here's one thing I want to point out. Do you remember in Acts chapter 13, the first missionary journey takes place, and the first missionaries are Paul and Barnabas, and they are joined by Mark. And they go on a mission journey, and Mark leaves them. He goes back to Jerusalem. So they go through the Galatian area, then they go back, and it's time for the second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas are ready to go, and Barnabas says, well, let's bring Mark. And Paul says, no, he deserted us. And they have a disagreement. So uh, Paul chooses Silas or Silvanus, and they form the new missionary team. And Barnabas and Mark are the second missionary team, and they go off, and now there are two missionary teams. Now, here's what's interesting. At the end of Paul's life, he's in jail, and he writes to Timothy, send me Mark. He's useful to me. And here in Rome, we have Silas, or Silvanus, and Mark, 
together with Peter. And uh, what does that tell you? You know, people say, when, when Paul and Barnabas split up, I wonder if they, they ever forgave one another. And I don't know that it was a matter of forgiveness. I think it was a matter of, um, we have some different standards here. Let's do things differently. But they're all part of the big church. There's a, okay, Greg, I'm going to test you. There's a song from the 70s. Uh, it, it goes... Um, there ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me, and we just disagree. You remember that one? Okay, you know who did it? Who's it? You know, Kevin? You remember the song, though, right? Dave Mason. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Dave Mason. There ain't no. We're going to close with that song today. Right. All right. So I, I think it's neat that the, the Peter's letter ends on a note of unity. All right. Now, let's look at Satan here. Be, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, here's, here's what I want to do. I, I want to focus most of our time on the roaringness of Satan. You know how Satan roars? He lies. He's a liar. He lies, lies, lies. So we want to look at three lies of Satan. But let me, as we look at this paragraph, touch on five words here. Okay? First of all, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, isn't it interesting that last week, Peter said, cast your anxieties on him. Rest in the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't mean be stupid and lose your head. Okay? So here he's calling us to be sober. Here's what uh, Grudem says uh, the word means, sober-minded. He says the opposite of this sober watchfulness is a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which one sees and responds to situations no differently than unbelievers and God's perspective on each event is seldom ever considered. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I think no differently than the rest of the world. Oh, wait a minute. What does God's word have to say about this. That's being sober-minded. When I was uh, in high school, we, we played f football, and I was a lineman on, on offense. And all the other guys, they were the superstars. Our job was to block the guys in front of us. Now, there's, um, there's, if you're blocking for a run, you, you have a specific guy that you're going to block, and you go after him, and you block him away from where the ball runner is going to go. But when you pass block, your job is to create a pocket around the quarterback. And here's, here's what the coach would always say. Um, pump your feet and keep your head on a swivel. Keep your head on a swivel. Because you, you're watching. A, guy could come, a safety could be coming blitzing. Or a, a guy from over here could be looping around. So you're keeping your head on a swivel. What Peter's saying is, don't be drunk. Be sober-minded. 
Don't be full of anxiety. Trust in the sovereignty of God and keep your head on a swivel because Satan is a liar and he's after you. Okay? Um, your adversary. That's, you know what an adversary is? Enemy. You have an enemy. I hate the fact that we have an enemy. When I was in, uh, in junior high, I had a bully pick on me. And every day he would corner me, usually in shop class. Because I, I came from, I was, went to Holy Cross, the Catholic school, and I was the nice Catholic boy. And this guy was a you know, mean guy. And he figured, well, I'm going to pick on that guy. Now, it also turned out that the principal of the junior high was Sam Rotolo, who they named Sam Rotolo Middle School after. Isn't that a coincidence? And um, he was also my next-door neighbor. I grew up with Sam Rotolo. So he took care of the bully. Which is, uh, there's a lesson here in spiritual warfare. We're, you don't fight Satan alone. Who do you go to? Sam Rotolo. <laughs> Way to connect the dots, okay? <laughs> you go to the Lord. You go to the commanding officer. Right? But you've got, a del- you, you've got an enemy. S- some of us just need to wake up to the reality that we have an enemy. Um, you know, George Barna, he does all these statistics about Christians, and um, you know how many Christians, self-professed Christians, believe Satan is not real? He, it's just a symbol for evil. 60%. Man, if I was a magician and I had an invisible person who could do things on stage, and nobody could see him, and nobody believed he was real, I could get away with murder. And Satan's getting away with murder because 60% of Christians don't even believe he's real. Right? If you read just the Gospels in the book of Acts, guess how many times Satan and demons are, are mentioned? 101 times. All right? So I, the 60% who don't believe in the reality of Satan, they're just not reading their Bibles because he is very real. Now, uh, what's he going to do? Well, he prowls around like a roaring lion. We're going to talk about his roar in just a second. Seeking someone to devour. Now, some people read that and they go, well, he can't devour us. You can't lose your salvation. Which is true. Can't lose your salvation. Right? But Satan can destroy your joy. He can destroy your peace. He can destroy unity. He can destroy your confidence. He can destroy your witness. He can destroy your testimony. He wants to neutralize you. Keep your head on a swivel. Realize you have an enemy. And he roars lies. He uses lies to destroy you. Now, Peter says, resist him. How do you you resist a liar? With the truth, right? We're going to talk about that. Um, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And now next week, we're going to be reminded uh, of the persecuted church. You know, over here on this side of the hemisphere, there's not a whole lot of Christian persecution. But on the other side, it's horrible. And there's something 
encouraging about remembering them and being reminded that, that suffering for Christ is not an oddity, it's a normality. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. And then here's a question. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now here's my question. Is that little while basically saying, well, life is a little while, then when you're, you're with Christ for eternity, he'll restore and strengthen you? Or is this referring to whatever uh, attack you are under now by Satan, that there is a limited amount of time under the sovereignty of God? In other words, there's relief coming during this life. Now, I don't think we can dogmatically say for sure what Peter has in mind, but I do think it's interesting to think of Peter's life. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me and one of you is going to deny that you even know me tonight. And Peter goes, not going to be me. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And then Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He's going to attack you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You're not going to lose your faith. And when you have turned again, when you've come back, strengthen your brothers. There's that word strengthen. So I, I, I can't be sure, but I think what if Peter's writing about his own frame of reference, there was a, a, an onslaught against him for a sovereignly limited amount of time. And then when he came back to Christ and Christ restored him walking on the beach at the end of John, um, he is even stronger now. Okay? So that's, uh, that's kind of the overview of the passage. Now, we sang a mighty fortress. Today is Reformation Sunday. And um, we were actually able to go see Martin Luther's hometown in, in Wittenberg. They don't say Wittenberg. They say Wittenberg. And you go to the Wittenberger and eat a Wittenberger sandwich. And um, we saw Luther's, we saw the, the church where he nailed the, the 95 Theses on the door. We saw the church that he was in. Prior to that, we saw his home. And it's just like a perfect little Mayberry town. Right? It's adorable. right? But Luther... Um, felt the presence of Satan and demons. Um, and people say, oh, he was paranoid. But can you think of anybody on the planet alive who Satan would rather have gone after than Martin Luther? As he is trying to um, you know, delineate what is the gospel and what is salvation? So I think he was under satanic attack, and he, he writes this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, 
we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word will defeat him. Now, I asked this on a Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, so if you were there, you don't get to answer. But Martin Luther had a certain word in mind that he thought would defeat Satan. Do you know what it is? Sam Rotolo, no. <laughs> Jesus, good guess, because Jesus is always the right answer, but not in this case. Liar. You are a liar, Satan. Rebuke him, because whatever lies he's spreading, we speak the truth and call him a liar, and that defeats Satan. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to look at the roar of Satan and, um, and look at, at three lies that he can uh, get inside the head of, of even believers and neutralize us with. Right? In fact, Jesus says this in John 8.44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. His character is that of untruth. So Satan is a liar. So um, let's talk about three lies Satan can use to get a foothold, even in believers' lives. All right? Now, they all kind of begin with the same letter A. So the first one is alone or isolation. Here's the lie. I could be a thriving, growing, obedient Christian alone, okay, without being vitally involved in the local church. I can be a thriving, growing, obedient Christian all by myself. Some of you have heard me talk about, this is probably 20 years ago, when uh, I came under satanic assault. I don't, I just don't know, and it was this time of year, and I was a pastor in Wisconsin, and um, so I, I'm, I'm feeling the burden of ministry. I'm reading Piper, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and the, the MacArthur book on uh, uh, the gospel according to Jesus. All of them questioning the salvation of uh, whether, whether professing Christians are truly saved. So I start analyzing myself. And that seed got planted, and, and I just kept watering it and watering it, and I called my elders and I said, I'm not saved. And after they stopped laughing, you know, um, I said, no, I'm serious. I, I don't think I'm saved. I, I just need to go deal with this. I, I can't be pastoring as an unsaved person. And they said, all right, go, go, whatever you need to do. So um, I got in a car, leaving my lovely wife with three babies. Two, only two, okay. Where'd the third one go? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't born yet, right? Okay. Um, 
And I, I just said I need to sort this out, and I drove down to Florida because my folks have a, have a place. They live here, but it was empty. I said, I just need to go sort this out. Stupidest thing I ever did. You don't go isolate yourself when Satan's attacking you because it's just you alone with your thoughts in the lies. You, you need another brother or sister to help you think this through and to speak truth to you. Um, so day after day after day, uh, I just let that lie soak in. And you know what? If you want to come up with enough evidence or lack thereof to prove that you're not saved, you can do it. Right? I bet you can come up with, if you really think about how sinful you are, you can come up with enough evidence to convince yourself that you're not saved. And that's why um, when I came back, I was in love with the gospel so much more because the gospel is it's not about... um, my righteousness, it's about his righteousness. Okay? Um, but there should be some fruit. We'll talk about that in, in just a second. Um, the writings of Spurgeon and the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones helped tremendously. Okay? And you know what? There wasn't a big zap where, oh, I feel saved now. There was an agonizing struggle and a simple trust in the gospel. Okay, Now, um, we, Kristen read earlier from Ephesians 6 about the armor of the Lord. Now, uh, we, you know, I think of Sunday schools or vacation Bible schools where we teach about the armor of the Lord, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes of peace, the belt of truth. And, and um, here's, what, here's what Christians do. They think, all right, I'm going to put on that helmet of salvation and I'm going to put on all this armor and I'm ready to fight Satan. But one thing that we can miss with that analogy of the armor of the Lord is this. If you're putting on the armor, you're part of an army. Right? Rome gave you your armor and you were on the Roman army. You were on a team. So we can, we, can, we can get so focused on individually putting on my helmet and my, my armor but not be a vital part of the team. And you're going to be defeated. Think, think of how ridiculous this is. Let's say you're... Uh, you love football, so you go out and you buy the best helmet you can buy. And you get some shoulder pads, and you put on your Green Bay Packer jersey or whatever who you're rooting for, and your, uh, your, your, your pads and your cleats, and you're just sitting at home on the couch by yourself in your football pads. That's what many Christians are doing today. Got their armor on. And they know all about it because they've read something on the internet about the armor. And they have their favorite podcasts and blogs and they're part of a community not of real people. They 
they're going to be defeated. You need to be part of the body of Christ. Now, I know I run the risk of sounding like a pastor harping on people uh, for sporadic church attendance. Okay? That's not my goal. My goal is to spare you being devoured by Satan. He gets you alone and isolated. You're a sitting duck. Okay? Let me show you this scripture. In the Corinthian church, there is a man involved in sexual immorality, and Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're to put him out. People are like, well, what? what is this hand him over to Satan thing? Deliver this man to Satan. Some Christians have a uh, delivering a man over to Satan ceremony. It, it, don't get too mystical. Paul has already defined what he means by this in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Put him out. Now here's the simple thing I want you to see. When you're in fellowship, there's a spiritual protection. When you're out of fellowship, you are handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why would you want to be out here on your own when you can have that protection? Okay. Now, let me, let me go a little further. It's possible to attend a church but still not be part of what we're talking about here. Part of that, that spiritual fellowship. Okay. No, my church is online, or my church is... Uh, you, you can sit and watch, but this is talking about being involved with one another, praying for one another, eating chili together, right? Being a vital part. So, so here's the question. Are you vulnerable to Satan's lies because you're isolated from the body of Christ? Have you bought the lie that you can be a Christian and do it on your own? And then, what are you going to do to correct that? Okay? So that's lie number one. Lie number two, anger. Here's the lie. I could be a thriving, growing, angry Christian. I can be a thriving, growing, angry Christian. Let's, uh, let's first see that the character of Satan is anger and wrath. In uh, Revelation, it talks about Satan being thrown down from heaven to earth. Okay. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan's been thrown down. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, some people say, well, when did this happen? Well, this was at the resurrection of Christ when Satan was thrown down. Others say this is in the end times, but we're in the end times. Either way, Satan is wrathfully attacking 
believers. Jesus in John 8.44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So we see that wrapped up in the person of Satan is anger and wrath. Now, I want you to see that anger is not a characteristic of a godly person. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger as a, as a, as a character description is more of Satan than it is of God. Okay? Now, Jesus was angry. He tossed the tables in the temple. And as my wife likes to remind me, you're not Jesus. Right? So yes, there's a place for righteous anger. But usually what we consider righteous anger is something that upsets me. And Jesus was defending the honor of his father and his house, his temple. Right? Um, interesting verse here, Galatians 5. Now in Galatians 5, there's the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But there's also the works of the flesh. And Satan likes to agitate the works of the flesh inside of us. What are they? Well, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And now there's a whole bunch of, of, uh, uh, of words that deal with conflict, all right? Enmity, that's hatred. Strife, conflict. Jealousy, that produces conflict. Fits of anger, and come back to that. Rivalries, whose side are you on? Pick a side. Dissensions, divisions, and then envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me comment on this word fits of, of anger. And I'm going to confess something to you. Okay. Um, earlier in our marriage, um, I was under the lie that when I was right, which pretty much was all the time, right, I could let my spouse have it. Verbally. Right. And I did. And um, God did, and he's doing, a work of sanctification where he, he allowed me to see a number of things. One, I was killing my wife. Two, even though infrequent, you know what a fit of anger does? Puts everyone on edge even when there's calm. And then everybody just kind of plays along to get along. And then here's what God showed me. 
It was giving Satan a foothold in our family. God showed me how sinful and satanic it was. Am I perfect? No. Um, and Caleb and I can get into some real interesting theological discussions and um, even the cats in the neighborhood run, you know. But um, so what about Jesus who overturned the tables in the temple? Well, I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus. But is that his character? When Jesus describes himself to us, what words does he use? For example, in Matthew 11, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does that describe the person you want to be? Now, what, what's interesting is that the angry person usually doesn't perceive themselves as that angry. So how do you know? Ask those who love you, am I angry? Are you afraid of me? Have we let Satan into our relationship? Right? Ask somebody who loves you. You know, at a men's breakfast a couple weeks ago, we looked at this verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means, rather than yelling at her, understand her, listen to her. Right? Showing honor, not dishonor, honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, and we talked about what that meant since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. But look at this. So that your prayers may not be hindered. And what that tells you is that when the horizontal relationship is broken, the vertical relationship is damaged. So constant... Angry, and I, you know, it's not just men. Women, women can be this way too. Constant strife and anger. You're fooling yourself if you think you have a vital relationship with the Lord because he doesn't allow it. It's like a, a person who takes their cell phone, they take the battery out, and yet they, they, they're talking to somebody, but it's, it's an illusion. Right? So, has Satan so deluded us that we think we can be characterized by anger and think we have a vital relationship with the Lord? You know, what do we do? You get on your face before God and say, rip this lie from me. Change my heart. Make me like Jesus. I'll give you a third lie. Pride or arrogance. Here's the lie. I can be a thriving, growing, prideful Christian. 
Okay, I can be a thriving, growing, prideful Christian. Now, I want you to see that a, a character, we saw that a characteristic of Satan is his wrath. Here, a characteristic of Satan is his pride. Now, in Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah starts off talking about the king of Babylon. But by the end, you go, he's, he, is he talking about a human here or is he talking about Satan? And uh, many people believe that what it is is he's, he starts with the king of, of, of Babylon, but what's energizing the king of Babylon is Satan. So this would be a description of Satan. You said in your heart, let's count the eyes, I will ascend to heaven. That's one. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But what does God say? But you're brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. I, I, I. Pride and arrogance does not mix with being a disciple of Jesus. Now, what can make a Christian proud and arrogant? Well, amazingly, the same thing that can make you humble and submissive. The Bible. The Bible itself and Bible knowledge can puff us up and make us know-it-alls where we can't even learn from God. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Even Bible knowledge can make us proud and arrogant. There's a, a term that theologians use. It's called dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means correct. Truth. And dead means no life. There are people who can hold to all the right doctrine. All the correct doctrine. But there's no spiritual life in them. They can articulate, right, today's the Reformation Sunday. They can articulate the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the authority of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. They can quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. They can point to the thief on the cross and say, see, he was saved by faith, not by works. But their faith is in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not in Christ. Right? There are those who can hold to the, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God, one in essence, three in person. And one of those persons, Jesus, is one in person and two in nature. And they can look up all the verses and quote it. But their faith is in having the right doctrine of the Trinity, not in the Trinity they can defend the tulip. Some of you know what I mean by that, that Calvinistic doctrines, they, they, uh, they can defend total 
depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement. And under limited atonement, they can tell you whether they're a supralapsarian, an infralapsarian, or a sublapsarian. And they can defend irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints that you can't lose your salvation. They can defend it all. They can defend that you can't lose your salvation of which they don't have. They are like the people Jesus was speaking of in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They have Bible knowledge, but they don't know Jesus. Now, again, you say, how do I know if I'm one of these people? Well, if you're humble enough, again, ask those who love you. Do I love the Word, or do I love using the Word to prove I'm right? Not the same thing. Now, um, there's a danger in introspection, but there's also a biblical balance. Do you see God working in you? Not necessarily correct doctrine, which that's important, but do you see God producing His His character in you. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. Those don't save you. But if you're saved... God's Spirit will produce this fruit in your life. Now, let me close with this. There was a guy who knew his Bible backwards and forwards. He taught others. He was zealous for teaching the Bible. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he describes himself before he met Christ. In Philippians 3, as to the law of Pharisee, those, that's the top of the, that's the best school. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was on fire. So on fire he'd kill people who disagreed with him. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Kept it perfectly, at least in his mind. But, Okay, so he used to be deluded here about his righteousness under the law and his Bible knowledge. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. I, I let all that go and saw my own, my own unrighteousness. And then I trusted in Christ Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here we have a guy who was proud, he was arrogant, he was angry, 
He was basing it all on himself and the Bible. And then Christ opened his eyes and he saw how far short he fell. And he trusted in Christ. And he abandoned all that stuff and his righteousness is now in Christ. And then he's the one who writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Satan is a liar. He is our enemy. He is our adversary. You are the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I pray that, that we would rebuke Satan. We would not buy his lies. We would not buy into them, but we would say what they are. They are lies. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to trust in you and that you would produce your fruit of righteousness and peace in us. So Lord, do your work amongst us. Some of that is work of correcting lies. Some of that is uh, work of sanctification. Some of it is just work of the Holy Spirit not being grieved and stifled. And may you be glorified in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.